right, I'm going to ask you to please turn with me your Bibles. If you have your Bibles, and I trust and pray and hope that you do. Old Testament readings from Numbers chapter 14. Numbers 14. And just as you're turning there, just a little bit of context. You know this is when Moses sent the spies into the land. God promised to bring them into the land of Canaan. And the people were supposed to believe him and trust in him. And they were spying out the land. And they come back and you know pretty much what happens. You have a brave person there, but the rest of the people actually don't trust in the promise of God. They don't believe the reality of the Lord before them. So, chapter 14 of Numbers, and I am going to begin... And well, you know what? I am going to go back to thirteen twenty-five. I'm just making that snap decision right now. Thirteen twenty-five, because this is the report of the spies who come back. Thirteen twenty-five, and then we'll go to uh, fourteen. At the end of the forty days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness at Paran. At Kadesh, they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land in which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and he said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, and listen to this, We are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to them, the people of Israel, a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little children will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now I'm going to ask you to please turn to Romans chapter 6, our text for this morning. I think we're just going to have to live with the, the booming and the banging for this morning. Try to get that squared away. Um, Romans 6, beginning in verse 1. Well, I want you to see the connective twist between what we just read 
and what we're reading now we'll be preaching on. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its lusts. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Amen. There's a lot there. And let us pray. Father in heaven, there is a lot there in your word. Who could fathom, uh, who, could, who could begin to plumb the depths of your word, Lord God? Certainly not us, apart from your grace, apart from your mercy, and apart from your spirit. So we call upon you, Lord God, to be very present with us this morning and help us, Lord, through this passage and through this text to understand what you are teaching us, what we need to learn, and how we ought to live in light of your precious word. So I pray that you would be with me to bring your message clearly, to bring it powerfully by your spirit, and to be with all of us, Lord, who sit at the feet of Christ Jesus, that we would learn, that we would be intent on learning and growing and living out this precious faith delivered once for all to his saints. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, now last week we talked about this idea that sin no longer reigns in our lives. And that's something we need to get through our thick skulls. That's what Paul's trying to do here for us. So over and over again, he's just impressing upon us the fact that if we've been regenerated, if we're converted, if we're justified, and we are, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, then you are no longer under the reign of sin. Do you believe that? That's hard to believe because we sin every day still, don't we? We battle with sin every day. So how can this be true? The fact that that power of sin is broken and we no longer have to live that way. No, we truly, and, and by his grace, we don't. We're raised to a high position in Christ. So last week we did talk about how you know if you're under the reign of sin, and we know that by our self-perception, you know, how we view ourselves before Jesus Christ. How do we view ourselves? Oh, we're pretty good people. We're not the worst. We're not the best, but we're okay. And then the concept of sin for the unbeliever, that whole concept of sin is just not biblical in so many ways. It doesn't line up with the scriptures. It, it kind of, it's this idea of, you know, well, we're, we're allowed to do these things, or we kind of rationalize our sin, we justify our sin. As a Christian, we no longer do that. 
We see sin for what it is. And then the fluid morality, that kind of subjective morality. What you believe five years ago, or what you know you stood against five years ago, maybe not so much today, because that's where the culture is. That's where the understanding is. That's where the believing is. So I guess that's where I am too. It's not like that for us. God's standard is the unchanging standard of his word. So the reign of sin is broken in us. And here's the... The essence, and here's why it's broken, because of the work of Jesus Christ, and then because we are united to Christ. This passage, this section, is all about our union with Jesus Christ. That if you're a Christian, then you are in Christ Jesus. Do you know what that means? That's a mind-blowing concept. Uh, We even had a conference on it a couple years ago, and still, when you try to really plumb the depths of it, you can't. That we belong to Christ. Everything that, that's his, all Jesus benefits, everything that belongs to Christ belongs to you. Do you believe that? That's almost hard to believe, that, that we are as acceptable to God as Christ is because we are in Jesus Christ. Our union with him, all the benefits of his perfect sinless life, all the benefits of his substitutionary perfect atonement, all the benefits of his glorious resurrection belong to his people, right? That's what he's saying here. Because of that, you need to know that sin no longer has that power over you as it once did, as you lived in it, as you walked in. Our identity, your identity is settled in Jesus Christ. You need to believe that. You need to understand that. This is true of all Christians. Our lives belong to Christ. That is the reality. Positionally, sin is no longer our default position. Before you were a Christian, sin was your default position. It is no longer that. Do you believe that? And do you live in that? That's what Paul is pressing here. He's pressing that point upon the Christians because he knows it's so hard for us to grasp because we still wrestle with sin. And we'll get to that, especially as we get to chapter 7. But nevertheless, in God's eyes, our position, we are freed from that power of sin. Sin was judged and paid for at the cross. Colossians 2.14. I missed one of our, our first passage. Uh, Colossians 2.14. Uh, 13 and 14. And you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him. Dead in sin. Alive in Christ. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? Check this out. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. Nailing it to the cross. The power of sin in your life is broken as we see life in a biblical perspective. That's what Paul's pointing here over and over, different ways. He's driving this reality home. He wants us to know this. He wants his readers to know this. He's teaching us. He's showing us through a series of analogies related to the Christian life and our union with Christ that sin no longer reigns in your life. You don't have to live that way. You can't say no to sin. You understand? We're not talking about perfectionism, and we know we wrestle with sin. But just as certain as we're united to Christ, you can be sure that that reign, that power of sin over you has been broken. So Paul says this. Think of your baptism. Let's look at baptism. So he says in verse in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who were baptized, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? You were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He's using that as an illustration to say the power and the reign of sin is over. Think of baptism, he's saying. 
What is baptism? <clears throat> when we're baptized, that's an outward picture, right? It's showing the world. It's showing, showing us the inward reality that something has taken place in our hearts, in our souls, in our lives. We've been transformed by God. That's what that pictures, right? That we are united to Christ, buried with him. Our sins are washed. We're raised up with him. But it really points to the true baptism, which is what? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. In other words, that is our regeneration. That's the, that's the ultimate. That's, that's what changes us. It's the Holy Spirit who changes us. We've been washed by him. So in Titus uh, chapter 3, I'm going to turn to Titus 3. If you want to turn with me, you may. Titus 3. Paul's talking to Christians, encouraging them, exhorting them to live as we ought to. And he says this, I'm going to go back to verse 3, Titus 3, beginning in verse 3. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice, envy, hated by others, hating one another. What's that? That's under sin. That's under the reign of sin. That's just how we lived. That was our natural bent. That's who we were. Verse 4, but... When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That is regeneration. That's a baptism of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen and praise God. And that's what that is. That's Paul saying, think of your baptism, how sure your baptism is in Christ. That you are no longer your own. Second Corinthians twelve thirteen tells us this. Is that Second Corinthians? I'm sorry, First Corinthians twelve thirteen. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. That's the, the Holy Spirit's baptism. Acts one five. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 3.27. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. So when Paul says here, you have been baptized into his death, that into, that into, that word into, that's union. That's language of union with Christ. We're in Jesus Christ. You were baptized into his death. And so Christ died. What that means is that Christ died for us. When he died for us, all the fullness of what his death meant belongs to you. Do you, do you understand that? That everything, as you trust and believe in Jesus Christ, Paul's saying that belongs to you. We're baptized into his death. So that what's that mean then? It means that our sins are atoned for. All your sins have been paid for. All your sins are covered. All your sins have been forgiven. Do you believe that? Past, present, and future in Christ Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You're baptized into his death. You've been justified. You are right in the sight of God. Nothing can separate you from his love. He's never going to say, not guilty. Oh, no, guilty. No, you're always not guilty. You're always pardoned. You're always accepted. Baptized into the death of Christ. Everything that the death of Christ meant holds true for us no wrath we don't have to worry about wrath when we die or when the lord returns no death we're going to be living with him he's the resurrection and life we live even though we die in christ no condemnation and no hell 
Those are just partially the benefits. When he says, you've been buried with Christ, you've, you've died with Christ in baptism, he's making that point. Just as sure as our baptism points to those things, that's how sure that reign of sin has been broken from us. Do you believe that? Do you, do you want, do you hold that? First, first Peter 2.24 tells us this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Part of that. We've been baptized into his death. And notice what he goes on to say in verse four. You were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That word buried is really important for you to get. That is so, again, always thinking in mind because he's he's relating aspects of our salvation and, and what happens to us as Christians. But he's pointing out the fact because these things are true, this is the reign of sin no longer Hold sway over your life. That's the point he's driving across by this. So when he says, you were buried with him, and there's that language again of union, with him, with him, right? When you were buried, that it's a very powerful word and concept. Think of it this way. What's the final act when you go to a funeral, at least when you used to go to a funeral, what's the final act? What's the saddest, I guess, part of that funeral? Isn't it when they close the casket? And I've been in many rooms with families, and it's a final time. You're saying your final goodbyes, and they close the casket. There's a finality to that. And then they come to the graveside, don't they? And, and they, they don't even let you stay around anymore. I've stayed around when they lower that casket into the ground, and then they cover it up. There's a finality to that. That hits so hard. That's what he's saying here. That should be true of us when it comes to who we were before Jesus Christ. That we are dead and buried to that old person. That person that was once captured. That person that was once so alive to sin. He says, you've been buried with Christ. Sin no longer has reign over you. Do you believe that? That's why Paul is pressing this point because it is so hard for us to really, really in our heart of hearts say, yes, that power of sin is broken in Jesus Christ. So then he goes on and he says, in order, there's a little bit of a transition here. He says, in order that we might walk in newness of life. So that old man, that old person now stays in the grave, buried, not going to come back. You're not going to lose your salvation. You don't have to go back to who you were. You don't have to go back to Egypt. Oh, my, things are tough. Things are difficult. The temptation's here. It's too much for me to bear. I just want to go back. No, that's dead and buried in Christ. So now we walk in newness of life. We are raised to newness of life that we might walk. And when he says walk, that means to live. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. We might live in a new way, that we live in his way now. Do you understand? Sin doesn't have that power over you. Don't go back to Egypt when you're tempted. Don't feel that you have to go back to that sin. Don't look at that sin as your like your comfort, your friendly little place where you kind of go back to time and time again. That has been broken. So when you do that, you, 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 you don't have to do that. Do you understand? And when you do do that, you repent of that, but you need not do that to find fulfillment, to find anything. That just leads to tragedy, doesn't it, in our lives? Don't ever be fooled. But Paul said that is broken over you. You don't have to go back. There are some sins that just make us feel comfortable, don't they? Places we like to go. No. That has been broken. No more. That used to be you. That is no longer you. A beautiful 
description of what this means to live and to walk in newness of life is found in Colossians chapter 3. I am going to ask you to please turn with me to Colossians 3. And this is very, you could see I'm in Colossians a lot this morning. We've already had a couple Bible references to them. Now we're going to read from Colossians. You could see the, the real strong connection between Romans and Colossians as Paul's talking about our position in Christ and our union in Christ. And the implications of that, what that means for us. It's all very practical. Paul's saying, look, here's how we need to live as Christians. This is, you know, it's deep theology to be sure, but it's not brain surgery either. It's like, have you been changed? You're no longer that power, so live this way. That's the idea. So Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, again, notice the past tense, it's already positionally, we're already raised with him, then you are to seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. And then he says, set your minds on things above, not on things in the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So he says, because of that's all true, that is all true. Then he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Don't live like you used to live. Sexual morality, don't live there anymore. You may have lived there in the past. That power has been broken. You don't have to go back to that lifestyle. You don't have to go back to where sexual immorality was just part of who you were in that way. Right? impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these things, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, put away anger. So those of you are anger, that's just my personality. That's just who I am. Okay, there's a struggle there. That's probably true. But in Christ, that doesn't have to dominate you anymore. That's not who you are in Christ. You can respond biblically to certain situations without blowing up, without freaking out, without getting so mad. That power of sin is broken in your life. You may respond in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God. You could be angry without sinning. Amen and praise God. Right? That's what he's saying here. That power of sin is broken. If you're in Jesus Christ, put that away. Wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after after the image of his creator. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is is all and in all. Amen. Back to Romans. That's a beautiful description of what Paul's talking about here in Romans when he says walk in newness of life. That word actually, when he says walk there, he says in in, um, in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, that's a really cool word. It's peripateo. It's always fun to say too, peripateo. Uh, sounds like a kid's game in some ways. Peripateo, it's an active verb, right? It's, a vo- it's in the active voice. So what it meant, it means literally to kind of stomp and like kind of walk on and walk around. Peripateo, peri around, and pateo means to motion, walking. And, and it, it, it means kind of like the idea was to make a path through a field, like a tall grass, right? So you have that tall grass and you're going through that's kind of clearing the field because you're walking very carefully to stomp that down because there's a lot of critters there that might do some damage to you like you know, like snakes and things like that so if you you're walking that way you're walking very very carefully in a circumspect way that's what that means peripateo means means to it really came to mean watch your step watch how you walk be very mindful 
Be very aware of where you're stepping, how you're thinking, what you're doing. Pay close attention to yourself. Walk in newness of life. All right, do you do that in your life? Are you very careful about the steps you take? Are you obeying the Lord in that way? I remember we had a dog. When we had our dog, my duty was mostly clean up, feed, clean up, you know. But in the wintertime, you had the snow, and it was just you really didn't want to clean up at that time. It was hard to do, so you waited for the thaw. But by the time the thaw came, right, there was there was a lot of danger areas out in the backyard. So I made sure, I always said, peripateo, peripateo, watch your step because one wrong move and it's not good, right, if you're stepping in that. So that's the idea, very carefully monitoring your steps. In other words, being mindful of God in your life. That's what he's saying. Being mindful. Every decision that you make, are you seeking to honor, obey, and glorify Him? Are you mindful of the steps you take? Are you thinking about God? Are you thinking about the Word? Are you just kind of reacting the way you usually react? See, that's what He's saying. Walk in newness of life. I don't have to live that way anymore like I did, that person that I was. I'm a new creation in Christ, and I'm mindful of that. He goes on in verse 5 to speak of the certainty of all of this, that sin doesn't reign over you anymore. Look at verse 5. For we have been united, and there's the very word, being united to Christ in him, um, with him in death like his, we so certainly, certainly, it's a very strong word, without a doubt, there's no doubt about it, be united with him in his resurrection, in a resurrection like his. So he talks about being united to Christ, the certainty. What Paul is saying here, and what it means for us especially, is just as certain as Christ's resurrection was from the dead, and just as certain as our physical resurrection is going to be, right? That's a certainty. You know that we're going to be raised when the Lord comes back. Just as certain as that is, it's just as certain that sin no longer reigns in your life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ was raised from the dead? Do you believe that you're going to be raised? Well, then you better believe that sin doesn't reign in your life. That it doesn't have that hold on you. So don't act like it does. Don't live like it does. You can live in this way. That's what Paul's saying over and over and over again. Why? Because it's hard for us to grasp. We know in our own experience it's hard because we know we live in sin. Again, we'll be dealing with that, especially as we get to chapter 7. He wants you to believe it because it's true so that you may live accordingly to him. Right? That's what he's saying here. So he goes on, verses 6 through 10. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So we're just going to stop there. But again, understand this. This is theological truth that he's pointing out. This is the work of Christ. But he's relating it to the idea of our life in Christ and sin reigning over us. Because all of this is true about Christ. It's true the fact that sin doesn't reign over you because of these things. So he talks about the old self. Well, first of all, he says, we know. We know. Do you know that? Do you know that the old self has been crucified with Christ? Are you still living as if you're alive to sin and not alive to Jesus Christ? He says, we know that. If you're a Christian, you know that something different in your life. Something has changed in your life. Right? We have been The old man has been crucified. Every Christian knows that something is different. We don't view sin the same way. Or do you? 
Do you still view this in the same way in your life? If you do, then you're in big trouble. If you do, then you need to come and talk to me or Aaron or Luke after this about your very salvation. Because when you're a Christian, your view, like we talked last week on sin changes, your view about yourself changes, right? Your view on morality changes. Your worldview completely changes and is in accord with the scriptures now. If it's not, man, if you're loving your old life, again, there's an issue there. But he says, we know this. It's a fact. It's a fact. We know that our old self was crucified, was, all past tense, crucified with Christ, right? We don't live as we please. We live to please God. The old self, again, that's our sin. Positionally, at the cross, our sin was dealt with. Now we can practically kill sin. Do you understand? Because it has been dealt with at the cross by Christ, positionally, our sins are crucified, covered, atoned for, we're forgiven. Now you go and kill that sin in your life and don't give in to it. You have the power to say no. That's what he's saying here. Practically do. Our old self is dead. See sin for what it is. Say no to it. Say, get behind me, Satan. I'm living for Jesus Christ and not for myself. I'm not living selfishly. I'm not looking for advice that's going to tell me something different than the Scripture's teaching. The scripture teaches what something is, the situation is, that's what it is. You don't go looking for advice to try to get around what the Bible actually teaches or try to you know, modify what the Bible actually teaches. It is what it says it is. He tells us what the truth is in there. So we say that. The old self is just another way of saying before you were regenerated, before you were saved, that's how you lived. That's how you believed. That's how you thought. That's the things that informed you were the things of the world, not, not the things from God. The things that inspired you, the things that led you before Jesus Christ rescued you from you, from Satan, from sin, from death, and from hell. Amen? That power is now broken in him. That's the big deal. Are you getting the point? This is what Paul is making emphatically as he's going on. If you are united to Christ, if you are in Christ, baptized into Christ, into his death, raised with him, then this is true of you. It's true of you. This isn't some motivational speech. I'm not trying to convince you. Do you believe that? Come on, just say, it's true of you if you're in Christ. And now you're called to live for him in that way. And you really don't have an excuse not to. And when we do sin again, there's repentance. But we are called to live for him because that sin is broken. So now he admonishes us. Check this out in uh, verse 11 and 12. He admonishes and he encourages us. Here's what you do. Here's who you are. Here's what's true of us in Christ. Now here's how you're supposed to live that out in your life. Very, very practical, very strong, positively and negatively. Let's look at verse 11. He says this. Now, because all this is true, so you also must. Notice must. That's an imperative. You don't have an option. You must do this. Right? You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because all of this is true, because we're united with Christ, because he lived, died, was raised for our salvation. A new creation in Christ. Sin has no reign over us, no power over us. This is the not just the, the admonition as well as the, the encouragement. Notice what he says. You must also consider, consider yourselves dead. Um, another strong word in, it's, it, in the Greek, it means to reckon. It means to believe it to be so because it is, right? Believe it. Do you believe it to be so? Right? Do you believe it to be true? Like, reckon yourself dead to sin. I am dead to sin. Do you believe that? 
Are you convinced of that? You need to be, he's saying, because that's what the truth is. You don't have to give yourself to that. You can react in a way that glorifies God. You can live in a way that honors him, right? You're dead to sin. You know, notice we read just earlier, and also in Ephesians 2, we were at one time dead in our sins and trespasses. You were dead in your sins. Now in Christ, you are dead to your sins. That's putting off the old man, putting on Jesus Christ. So when he says, consider yourself or reckon yourself, it's not simply a hope. Well, I hope that I'm dead to my sin. I wish that I was dead to my sin. I'm going to try harder to be dead to my sin. No, no, you are dead to your sin. Now live in that. Sin no longer has a grip. It doesn't have a death grip on you anymore. Right? Put to death that. I think in... in, um, Romans chapter 13, I wanted to put this up on the board. Romans 13, I believe, in verse 14, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. See, we make provision for the flesh. We do that all the time in our minds. We we allow, he, he's saying here, and then in, in Romans um, 13, don't give it a chance to grow. Don't give that 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 sin. Don't linger over sin. You know how we do that? That's why we're told to flee from sin. Don't entertain it in, in your minds. Don't let it swirl around. Don't be thinking about it or you know thinking about how it make make you feel. Don't do that. He's saying, no, don't do that. Make no provision for the flesh. You make provision for the flesh all the time. And that's why we sit. And Paul's saying here, we don't we don't have to do that. That's not who we are. In Christ. Don't linger over. Don't, don't play too close to the edge. We love to play close to the edge. Pray. Pray like the psalmist prays in Psalm 13. I'm sorry. Yeah, Psalm 19. Psalm 19, 13. Listen to this prayer. Do you pray like this? He says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. He's saying, please keep me from willful sins. Those are the sins that you kind of think about, the kind of linger over, kind of, you know, go to in your mind. He says, Lord, keep me from that. So so he prays to be kept from those. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And so in Christ, we can say no. That's We have that in us by his spirit. Flee from those times. If you have to flee in your mind, go away from that. If you have to flee physically, flee, go. Run away from that. He says, you put that off. He, he, he tells us that. Consider yourself, Consider reckon yourself, as dead to sin, put off that old man, right? Put it off. Put him off. And then he goes, but be alive to Christ. That means put on the new man, put on Jesus Christ. Are you alive in Christ Jesus? Do you feel alive? You know, I, that's a, again, this is, these are very powerful words in many ways. Um, when he says be alive to, to God in Christ Jesus, the idea is like, have you ever heard anybody say, I just feel alive when I'm in this place. Like when I go into the woods, I just feel alive, you know, and I just, I'm alive. Or when I'm with this person, that person makes me feel alive. Well, that's, that's kind of the idea here. That's, that's to, when, when you're saying that you, it, it indicates that you love being there, that there's joy there, that there's excitement, that there's expectation, that there's a vibrancy, right? An intimacy. 
You should be like that with God in Christ Jesus every single day. You should have, you should feel that alive. I'm alive in Christ Jesus. And I'm alive to him. Like, I, my joy is in him. That's where my ultimate joy is found. I don't care if I'm in the middle of the woods looking at nature, beautiful. My glory goes to God, like the psalmist said. You know, who is man? Who, who am I that you, who's man that you should consider him when I see the beauty of your creation? That's bringing joy, being alive to God in Christ. You don't just go to the woods so oh, I feel good about being in nature. Now we go and we say, look at this creation. Look at the sun, the moon, the stars. God created all that. Amen. Praise God. I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. I want to be close to him. I want to be near his word. I anticipate my time in worship, in fellowship, in the word of God. It's not just this laborious thing for me. I'm alive to him. I'm excited. I have expectation. I want joyful obedience. I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to live it out. That's being alive in Christ, as it were, because we are alive in him. And when you want that, when, you know, something's going to make you feel alive, that's that, that ex, there is that um, excitement to that. So there's that joyful obedience. I want to meet your expectation, Lord. Your laws aren't a burden to me. I want to be faithful to you. And, and, and when I'm not, it saddens me. It hurts me. I'm convicted by that. I want to be. I want to please you, not so that you love me, but because you love me. Do you understand? He says, be alive to God in Christ Jesus. Are you alive to God in Christ Jesus? Or is it just like, okay, I've taken my Christian life for granted. Oh, man, I guess I got to do this. Oh, man, it's so hard for me. Stop. Be alive to him. He brought you from the dead. You're in Christ. He bought you with a price. Love him. Grow close to him. Our identity's in him. Amen? Good. And then verse 12. So that's positively in that, in that way. Put on. In verse 12, he says this. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't you let it reign, man. Don't you do it. Then, well, I don't have a choice. You have a choice. If you're a Christian this morning, you have a choice. You can say no to sin. You just don't want to because you love your sin too much at that moment. You know what I mean? Oh, I just feel I have to do this. Oh, I just have to think this. Oh, I just have to say it. No. He's saying right here, don't you let it rain because it doesn't rain. Don't you let it rain. Why not? Because it has no right anymore in Christ Jesus. So don't let it rain. It has no power. So don't let it, don't give it the power to reign in your life. It has no place in your life anymore. So why are you making provision for it? That's what he's saying. Don't let it rain in your life anymore. Right? We're always going to struggle against sin. No doubt. All, all those kinds of things we'll talk about in our sanctification. But here, fundamentally, positionally, we have died to sin. Don't go back to Egypt. They went back to Egypt. We saw that this morning. Oh, they were afraid of the report. They weren't trusting in God's promise. They weren't trusting in God's word. They weren't trusting in God's will for their lives. They were saying, okay, God, I know what you said. I know what you told us about going into the land and what you're going to do for us. But I'm afraid because they're big people and these reports are coming back. And we're not going to listen to Caleb. Who, You know, that's just one guy. Everybody else is saying this. So we're not going to do that. So we're going to disobey you. Oh, why did we even listen to you in the first place? I'm just going to go back to Egypt. And sometimes you feel that way. You just want to go back to your old life. Back to who you were because that's in some ways easier for you to do. He says, no. Don't you let, don't be like that dog that returns to its vomit, right? We don't want to be that. We know what Egypt is like. They were in slavery there. Other place they said that, oh, back in Egypt we had the dates, we had food. Are you kidding me? You were slaves back in Egypt and you were tortured back in Egypt and there was no freedom in Egypt. 
It's like the dog that returns to his vomit. Why would you want to go back to that? What's there for you? That's what he's saying here. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Listen, man, you need to resist it. You need to fight. You need to be ruthless with your sin. Are you? No, we're not. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you, then you take that out and you throw it because it's better to go to heaven with one eye than to go to hell with your whole body. We're too, we're, we don't, we don't resist sin enough. Don't let it reign. That's a battle cry. That's a call to you. There's a sense today in evangelicalism in this world that we're living in right now that if you fight sin, if you renounce sin, if you call sin what it is, then you're not being authentic somehow. That is, that is so wrong. That is not biblical at all. So you see, all the, well, we just want to be authentic and we want, you know, God to change us and our feelings to change in that way. Listen, man, you have to fight against that sin. Sometimes he's testing you. Do you know that? Sometimes he puts you in that position to test your faith, to see if you're going to say yes to him and no to sin, right? We can go through scripture, but we're just running out of time. How God placed that test before his people. You're told to take up your cross daily and fight against that sin. We feel so sorry for ourselves, like the little babies that we are. Oh, well, I did this in my life, and I feel this way, and I'm just bled in this way. Listen, here's what the Word of God says. You say no to sin. You fight against that. You're in a battle, man. With everything your flesh wants to say yes to, your spirit says no to. I will not do this. I will not dishonor Christ just so I feel good in the moment, or I feel vindicated in the moment, or I feel justified in the moment. No. He's saying, don't let that sin reign over you, right? Till he takes the desires away. No, man, kill it. Fight it. We're in a battle, man. It's a battle. Sin is a battle every single day. Paul, I beat my body to obey Christ. I'm going to flee from here. I know the price I'm going to pay for my obedience, and I know what's going to happen when I disobey the Lord. Fight it. Don't let it reign. It has no place, has no power. We give that to, to our sin. All right, then he goes on to say, don't present your members uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Okay, again, here's the admonition. Here's, here's the application. Here's what he's saying. Look, don't do it. You do not do it. By the power of the Spirit, don't give yourself over to, to that sin. And put off that sin and put on Christ. He says, an instrument. The word for instrument means an implement, a tool, um, an, a utensil, a weapon. Something that is made for a specific purpose and use. We're instruments. That's, that's what an instrument is. And when that instrument is rightly used, it serves that purpose well. Amen? Praise God. We want to be an instrument for righteousness. Um. When you use it right, when, when you do what it's meant to do, it's, it's, it works great. So, so when we're living for the Lord and we're obeying Him, we're, we're, we're meant, we're meant to love Him, to honor Him, to serve Him, to obey Him, to worship Him, right? To be complete in the Lord. That's what we're meant for. We're instruments in the hand of God to be used by Him faithfully and to be faithful to Him. That's the instrument. Alright? He says, present yourselves do not present yourselves, your members, to sins as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought with a price from death to life, and your members to God as an instruments for righteousness. You see? So it's like anything. You can think of a million different things, but think of a scalpel. A scalpel can do what? A scalpel can help save your life if it's used the right way. 
but a scalpel could kill you if you have used in the wrong way, right? If it's if it's not used how it was intended to be used. On the one hand, it could save your life. On the other hand, it could bring death. How is it going to be used? You're an instrument of righteousness for the Lord. Think of a vase. The vase's purpose is for flowers. It's not to throw at your spouse's head when you're in an argument, right? That's a, it's not, that's a purpose. It's not meant for that. It's an instrument. It's beautiful when it has the flowers in there. Not so much when it's flying through the air and heading for your head. That's not what it's meant for. It's neither are you. You're not meant for sin. You're meant for righteousness. You're meant to obey God. Do you believe that you can? Do you believe that you can? I know that there's not sinless perfection. I'm not ever saying that. But we are able to say no to sin at the same time. I know there's a tension there. There really is. But that is what the Bible teaches. That's what Paul is teaching here. But too many of us just kind of live in our sin, take it for granted, it's never going to change. Wait a minute. Paul says no. An instrument for righteousness. And then there's a summation in one statement. He sums up this whole section that he's talking about, um, again, regarding our union with Christ, but also it kind of gets back to the law and grace thing that we talked about a couple weeks ago, kind of where he started. He's coming full circle. So look at verse 14. He says, for sin will not have dominion over you. Why not? Since you are no longer under the law, but under grace. Now, again, the antinomians love this verse because it's, ah, not under the law. We're under grace. We're not under law, under grace. We could do what we want. We could live as we please. If you're still thinking that, refer to, I think, two weeks ago, the message. I'm not going to talk about that today. But sin does not reign over us because we are not under the law. We're under grace. In our union with Christ, because we're united to Christ, because we're in Christ, we are under, we are, we're, under grace, not under the law. So when he says, for sin won't have dominion, it will, it, 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 it's not, it's not saying it shouldn't, you know, it's not saying it shouldn't have dominion over you. It will not have dominion over you. You believe that. It will not. Because you're not under law, because you're, because you're under grace, because you've been saved by grace. In other words, you're not under the weight of the law anymore. Before you were a Christian, you were under the weight of the law, weren't you? That weight of the law is trying to keep that law, looking at it. Well, I'm going to try to be a good little boy, a good little girl, so that, you know, maybe I'll do more bad or more good than bad, and hopefully I'll come out on the right side of things. And I'm trying harder, doing better, working on myself, trying to keep these commandments so God will love me. That's one bad use of the law. That's not what it's meant for. You can never, you can never get to the Lord that way. But people do that. At the same time, they're violating the law and they're making excuses for why they violate the law. Well, you know, my spouse is a jerk anyway and this person treats me better or, you know, they really don't deserve that and I didn't have this growing up so taking it from somebody is okay. You know, we always rationalize, justify, minimize our sin in that way. So we're at the same time, we're trying to keep the law to earn favor but we're breaking the law the whole time in that way. So when, when, he, when he says that, it doesn't mean, he's not saying don't worry about obeying the moral law. That's not what he's saying here, Right? What Paul's saying here when he says you're not under law but under grace, it means that you understand that the law was never meant to save you. It was never meant as a means of salvation, but it was meant to show you because you try to keep it and you can't because you break it all the time. It's meant to show you your need, that you can't do either one of those things and then drive you to Jesus Christ, the only one who kept it perfectly and never broke it one time. Amen? He kept it for us. So so the law is that teacher, that tutor that drives us to Christ. 
now that we're under grace, that we, we're there. We don't need that tutor as such to, to drive us to Christ. Now we see the law as a beautiful guide for us in the Christian life. We want to you know, please the Lord and live in obedience to him, but not as a means of gaining favor, not as a means of you know, earning something from him in that way. Never, never in that way. But you see, when he says you're under grace, that's what he means. The Christ has fulfilled the law for you. So you don't have that burden because you can't do it anyway. Only in Christ could you be seen as perfect, as if you've kept the law perfectly in that way and never broke it. It's our union with Christ that sets us free from that reign of sin and allows us, it allows you to live the way in a way that is truly worthy of our calling in Christ, where sin doesn't have dominion over you. Don't let it.